the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today we are celebrating episode 100 of the pod and uh, couldn't ask for a better guest Uh to help me record that episode. Uh, You will all know him as John Zygterman of Beep Beep Lettuce. (laughs) One of my favorite uh, guests to have on the pod, period. But yeah, it's awesome to have you here, John. Thanks so much for joining me for episode 100. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for letting me talk about Sterner again. You sent me this piece that we're going to look at. And I was just like, hell yeah, we're going to get some real fucking big brain hours up in here. Hell yeah. And uh, also, listeners, if you don't know, John is responsible for our new theme music. So, so yeah, I think whatever respect. you just heard uh, that came out of came out of my <laughs> little Ableton program on my laptop, I'm very proud of it. So uh, you know, uh, you know, flattery is accepted. <laughs> so today we, of course, as John mentioned, we'll be discussing our good friend Max Stirner, and we are going to look at a piece titled "Max Stirner: The Last Hegelian or the First Poststructuralist" by Andrew Koch. But uh, before we dig into the meat of the text, John, I wanted to ask you, I don't think I ever asked you what first kind of drew you to Sterner. How did you kind of um, uncover him, etc.? It was pretty much through memes. Uh, I didn't find Sterner through any kind of like academic avenues. And really outside of like being on Facebook and Twitter, I don't really have a lot of academic avenues. I didn't go to college. I didn't study philosophy formally, except for like picking out philosophy books from a reading list once in like 10th or 11th grade, uh, which is where I got started reading Camus. So probably it's like a combination of my affinity for thinkers who were influenced by Stirner, like Camus, and to a lesser degree, Sartre. Uh, And also just the fact that like, there was this weird smoking, smiling cartoon man in these memes, and the people who were making the memes had an attitude around them that I really liked, and it, it had this kind of like, um, this similarity with a lot of like edgy humor that is typically like wears thin on me really, really fast, like kind of like South Park or whatever. It had that same format, but it was actually like funny. Like the, the jokes went all the way down to the core of the issue. Um, and even when you're saying something flippant, like, oh, you're just very, very spooked. What a spooked idea. It's, it's kind of like the equivalent of somebody in an academic setting being like, look, I really think that whatever idea you're trying to present here is just not thought through, and it's essentially kind of infested with one form of essentialism or another, and we want to break that down. And so over time, uh, especially as I got into reading anarchist thinkers, like uh, mostly Kropotkin and Malatesta at first, a little bit of Berkman and Goldman, um, I started to feel the affinity and started to see passages from Stirner kind of in the wild on social media, and I said, eventually, I 
don't remember exactly when, okay, it's time for me to fucking pick up the ego in its own. And I read that, and then I read some secondary material on him, and then I found out about the translation by Wolfie Landstriker, The Unique in Its Property, which is such a better translation. I would recommend anybody read that one instead. And it's it's just been, like, history after that. Now Sterner is just, like, part of my fucking vocabulary in my life. Nice. Yeah, I'm trying to find... I had a meme that I found and it was funny because uh, Dave from Mandatory OT thought it was like one that you had made <laughs> and it was just one that I like did I found on a Google search and it's Sterner and it's like there's a it's something along the lines of don't think I won't deconstruct reality in this Popeye chicken <laughs> or some shit like that oh god I wish I had made that one that that's one of the all-time <laughs> right. best ones that and um, the one where it's like Sterner's face on top of the guy holding the KFC bucket under the Dr. Pepper faucet and just filling up like a whole chicken bucket with soda. And it just says like, I do not step shyly away from your property, but look upon it always <laughs> as my own in which I respect nothing. That's a uh, very strong memory. And I think there's something special about like philosophy memes in that memes are kind of this language that is, expresses complicated ideas in a succinct way and also in a way that's a little bit new for a, a, a lot of people. And there's something about making that interact with things like philosophy that deal with such a weird like dichotomy of the incredibly complex and the incredibly mundane all the time. I mean, sure, they write 10,000 pages, but they're just writing about sitting in a room thinking about thinking. And it's like, there's just so much going on there. <laughs> that this is That's the meme I was talking about. That one, to me, looks like, I think it's an edit of a teenage stepdad meme from some time ago, the, the peeling sticker on it. No, I, I wish yeah. I... That was a really nice touch, I wish I, I had made that, but uh, I don't think that I did. I do think I know the original <laughs> meme by Teenage Stepdad that that was spun off of. And I bet if I put out an ask on my friends list, I could find the maker of that meme. It's funny, the, the, the culture of internet people who find Sterner interesting and like to talk about him is not that big. <laughs> we kind of all got to know each other really fast through just a couple of Facebook groups and like Twitter, pretty much. I think you might have touched on this a little bit, but I'm kind of just curious, like, could you maybe go into a little bit of depth in terms of, like, what you find so kind of alluring about the old the old Max, St. Max? I don't know. There's, there's a bunch of things. Something more superficial that I think definitely got me hooked in the beginning is that he has a very flamboyant and, like, jokey, almost, like, shit-posty kind of writing style. And as a kid who grew up, you know, reading Calvin and Hobbes and then, like, Douglas Adams and then, like, a bunch of weird fantasy and sci-fi books, that felt like a very uh, easy way for me to interface with, like, political philosophy, uh, social philosophy, natural history, all of that stuff in a way that felt genuine. I've always been turned off by, like very overwrought and, and Baroque kind of philosophy. And I've also been always kind of turned off by overly like romantic or sappy kind of ideals about human nature or the way that society is supposed to function. Not that I think that we shouldn't feel like joy and sadness and all of these other complex emotions that a human has, just that when you're kind of analyzing all of these spheres of influence at a macro level, maybe, you know, that's not something that you want to have. And of course, I was like a, a teenage fedora core atheist for a little while. I had a bunch <laughs> of phases that kind of all led up to this. Um, but a big part of it that I've, that I liked at first and didn't fully understand and that I've really, really grown 
especially fond of as I've looked into not just Stirner, but the thinkers who are influenced by Stirner is there's this relentless focus on the particular, right? You never want to have a rule of thumb that becomes a natural law. You always want to recognize that, you know, generalizations are generalizations and there's always like all of these interrelating levels and kind of various unknown unknowns interacting with a situation and there's a certain particularity to that uh, or like nominalism to that that I find very very enticing and you know I've always been kind of attracted to science and math things that were falsifiable things where that could be subject to rigorous rigorous testing and it seemed to me especially as I was getting to know the work of Marx and getting to understand materialism uh, better as a philosophical position then I kind of started to feel like it didn't go far enough and, you know, was so delightfully surprised to find out that there was a whole tradition of thinkers, and especially this guy, Max Stirner, who really, really wanted to break everything down to the nominal and the knowable and start from the absolute most, like, fucking basic essentials. Like, if you can challenge something and overturn it, don't be afraid to do that. That's always you know, the, the next step, because you're not trying to come up with something to comfort yourself. You're trying to like confront the real. And I've, I've always, I don't know, maybe that's the romance in my mind that kind of, that, that kind of makes me act irrationally is I, I would rather, I, I, I relentlessly want to confront the real, but that, I think that's it. I think it's that passion for, uh, kind of overcoming the sol- the solipsism of human existence and and finding a connection that's meaningful and I I love the level of rigor with which Stirner assesses what is meaningful or what is real. Yeah, I, I you know I think I can really identify with quite a bit of that and f- sort of coming from I think a figure like like a Derrida um, mm-hmm. from the post structuralists is kind of fulfilling that same kind of I mean deconstruction that's sort of what it is is sort of like pointing out the sort of, you know, there's so many contingencies, there's so many contradictions within any given text itself and just kind of unraveling the greater project of Western philosophy itself and kind of unpacking all of that and saying, okay, look, you know, the Enlightenment kind of thought that it was abandoning a lot of these um, more, I don't know, idealist you know, things that were sort of relics from the era of when the Roman Catholic Church was running Europe, mm-hmm. largely. And, you know, it's, and I think Sterner gets to this, too, and in, in that he's kind of noticing that same thing at his time is, like, the Enlightenment um, has kind of, like, it's it's kind of like the old windows running on DOS like a shell, right? Like, he kind <laughs> of slapped on a nice little... GUI graphical interface on top of DOS, but you're still essentially running yeah, DOS, it's like, and that DOS is like idealism. It's the FIFA games, right? Idealism was like FIFA, I don't know when they started, 02 or whatever, and every year they just slap a new coat of paint on it. Oh, this isn't Roman Catholicism uh, and the morality that comes with that. This is Protestant morality. Oh, this isn't Protestant morality anymore. This is humanist morality. Okay, wait, now it's secular humanist morality or whatever, and it's just, it's this endless rehashing and repainting of things so that you can not have to actually address the the underlying concerns. And it is frustrating because I think 
I think we would be well served if more people who thought like, oh, I don't, you know, I'm not a, phil- a philosophy guy. I couldn't know anything about it. Like, I'm a fucking like random stoned dude who really likes video games and anime and, and, and weed and making dick jokes. And if <laughs> I can like learn about the difference between what Wittgenstein thought and what Kant thought and, and what Sartre thought, you can also like pick up any any piece of philosophical literature and get your start in on it like even if you disagree with it just hate read it that's what half of philosophy is anyways just hate reading things and i think that's another thing that i always really liked about sterner is when you know there's a jokiness and like uh, a lot of philosophers will make a contradiction and then they'll be like well now that we've established the contradiction let's look at a bunch of different examples and this and that and, and sterner had this tone when I read him the first time where he would establish the contradiction and then he would just kind of wink at you and be like, oh, see what I did there? And I love a good <laughs> see what I did there. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think the the relativism and a lot of people would call it like postmodernism or intersubjectivity or, or whatever. I think that's a, a powerful analytical tool that as long as you don't reify it into something that cannot be attacked by its own, you know, foundations, then I, it's going to serve you very well. I agree. And I, my path to Sterner was, I think, very much the same, maybe through Reddit memes or something. Okay. And then, you know, I, I mean, we've talked about Sterner a, a few times on the pod and kind of exposure to secondary sources. I've got that shitty translation of the ego in its own from, I think, <laughs> Verso that I haven't fully uh, read yet but I'm working on it, but I've got like a huge stack, but it was really kind of cool. Once I, you know, started going through these, you know, from secondary sources, it kind of felt like, okay, there's so much overlap. And I think in particular with Derrida, especially like their projects, I think are maybe, you know, they may not overlap entirely, but they're parallel. Oh yeah, definitely. And I mean, I feel that kind of with, Stirner and a lot of thinkers, you know, even Hegel, who we are going to distance Stirner from later in this episode, but even Hegel, I think, like, it's just this, this, like, reflectiveness and this incessant kind of always reworking and always being critical of, of whatever kind of things you had in your head. But of course, Hegel was a more like Aristotelian figure. He liked to accumulate knowledge and he liked to have a, a field of different influences to pull from and then kind of triangulate real truth out of that or whatever. And I, that's what's like so delightful about Stirner is he's like a 19th century Diogenes of Sinope, right? He's like, <laughs> just, you know, just break it all down if there's a fallacy anywhere, throw it out the window, throw out the baby with the bathwater. Why not? Like, give it, fucking try it. Uh, and, and I just think that there's something, like, weirdly beautiful about that. And there's a piece by him that I recommend a lot that is not even strictly political. It's kind of just like a, um, a big, like, ranty shitpost about different philosophers at the time. But um, I think it's called Art and politics or something like that and he he mostly just attacks this guy kuno fisher and it's like the most fucking delightful takedown post of the 19th century and and, and I, <laughs> I just wish more writers would write like that you know maybe if Immanuel kant had written his prolegomena oh, uh, with a little bit of fucking sassy shit in it people would actually <laughs> right. read it like 
seriously, oh god, Kant, I can't, I can't even. That shit is. That's an unbuttered no piece way. of hardtack, man. It's just like you need yeah. to drink a gallon of water to swallow that shit. Couldn't fuck with it, but I'm going to go ahead and jump a little bit into the text, um, and I think I'm going to read this little section here just to kind of get Koch's opinion or argument for where Stirner kind of fits in that Hegelian tradition. Engels and Karl Lowith treated Stirner's work as the culmination of the Hegelian conception of absolute spirit, although Marx and Sidney Hook saw Stirner as a dangerous apologist for the failing bourgeoisie. The link between Stirner and the Hegelian tradition is an uncomfortable one. It's largely explained, I believe, by Stirner's attraction to some of the ideas of Hegel while a student in Berlin. In addition, Stirner spent a period of his life socializing with a group known as the Young Hegelians. Yet, as Stepovich recognized, Stirner does not employ any of the Hegelian concepts in his actual work. There are no references to the dialectic, no use of the Hegelian triad, and there is none of Hegel's technical language. Further, the ego in his own can be easily interpreted as an attack on Hegel. Stepovich explains this and others continued interpretation of Stirner as a Hegelian by employing Hegelian technique. Stepovich argues that as the last Hegelian, Stirner completes the dialectical process by appearing as an anti-Hegelian. <laughs> Which I love that that Stepovich is uh, clearly like such a hardline modernist philosopher. Just from that little that little piece alone, I, I really love that because to me it's like I don't. There's a dualism here that I think Stirner himself would try to escape. It's not an attack on Hegel. It's not the natural conclusion of Hegel. It's kind of a bit of both. He's kind of by your logic-ing Hegel, I think. It's like a, it's a, it's sardonic. It's like a satire. And in that, it's like, it's very unrelenting. So I don't know if I would call Stirner Hegelian or anti-Hegelian. I would say that Stirner is a, is a non-Hegelian who has a commentary of Hegel, for sure. How much have you delved into Hegel out of curiosity? I have not read very much primary source from Hegel, but I have watched a lot of different videos from this guy, <laughs> Gregory B. Sadler, and I would recommend anybody who's interested in Hegel, okay. check him out. He has a YouTube channel. He'll also, like, friend you on Facebook, which is really weird. He's a cool guy. Uh, and he's uh, <laughs> he's just, like, this middle-aged guy with a ponytail who will stand in front of a whiteboard and explain to you, like, dialectical synthesis or the, you know, the Hegelian triad or all of Hegel's influences and stuff. And I've I've checked out a bunch of that, but it seems to me that for all of the probing into Hegel that I've done, his work is so fundamental and so explored and expounded upon by so many other philosophers that I didn't feel like I learned anything new uh, that I hadn't already learned from secondary sources, even if you count like Stirner and Foucault as secondary sources on Hegel, uh, except for maybe just clarifying a few little details here and there. Um, and I think that I would like to see that with Stirner and and Marx's work someday, and especially Engels, who I think is kind of undervalued next to Marx often, because Marx was such a titan, and you know all of these other amazing thinkers ended up in his shadow because it was so historically big. But there's just there's a lot to be learned, even from reading like you know the guys who like were kind of the shitheads of the group, like Bruno Bauer and Ludwig Feuerbach. Still very worth diving into, but I think you have to have like 
an interest in kind of the historical context of how all of these philosophers interacted with each other and like the conditions of it. So it's not just like a philosophical pursuit. I think it's pretty interesting that you don't really like in my intro to philosophy class, I we never really discussed Hegel. Like, yeah, I at bet all. not. They didn't want to scare you. Which it seems like crazy. Yeah, um, and I wonder, like, I wonder how much of the, that is the legacy of his influence on Marx in particular, particularly in the West. I think know? there's a lot of that. I think there's a lot of anti-communism. Like, you look up Hegel, and the the main person that he influenced, like the most historically significant person he influenced, was Karl Marx by a, quite a good margin. So I definitely think there's a bit of that. I think it's also that Hegel is like an insanely and sometimes unnecessarily complex philosopher who tried to tackle, you know, every subject under the sun. Um, And then there's also the fact that I think a lot of people who get into philosophy get into it because they have one or two or a handful of ideas or kind of feelings inside of themselves that they've never been able to adequately express or find a reason for out in the universe. And that can be good. It can be the start of a very honest and like self-reflective path towards like really thinking about the world critically and thinking about yourself critically. But a lot of times it does devolve into just somebody who's trying to prove something all the time. And then you get these professors or teachers who have like pet philosophers who are their favorites the same way that like my English teacher in like 10th grade saw that I was picking up Camus and Sartre and probably knowing like the Marxist and anarchist connections that they had saw fit to put a copy of an Ayn Rand book in my hand. And that is the story (laughs) of how I read The Fountainhead and became even more (laughs) communist afterwards. (laughs) Nice. Oh, man. Uh, That's kind of interesting because I sort of, so I, you know, was coming from a small kind of rural community very tight-knit, very, like, I don't know. You know what I mean? There's, like, a lot of uh, cultural homogeneity. Oh, there. yeah. That's very similar to where and I grew so, up. And so, like, at the time that I was exposed to Ayn Rand, uh, I think the first work of hers I read was um, Anthem, which I think is probably her best work. And I've read, I, I think I read We the Living all the way through. I started The Fountainhead, never could finish. I started <laughs> Atlas Shrugged numerous times. Yeah, I tried to read Atlas Shrugged finish. after I read The Fountainhead. And I, that was kind of when I realized that I wasn't really into Ayn Rand. And I was forcing myself to read this. Because, I don't know, when I was younger, I had this idea that like it was shameful to put down a book halfway through. Like it was bad to lose interest <laughs> in a book. And now I'm like, I'm, ex- I'm like so relieved when I can put down a book halfway <laughs> through when I'm just like, oh, actually, I'm, I don't care about what the rest of this is. And I can find something else new to educate myself about. And I think that's a bit of the problem with the way we kind of educate people about literature, because like, you know, even George Orwell. George fucking Orwell, the fucking, like, the the main author of books that are used to quote-unquote discredit communism in in the United States education system, fought, fought alongside the anarcho-syndicalists in Spain and had very complicated, you know, positions on politics himself. He was essentially a Fed, but it's like, there's this whole complicated relationship to power, complicated relationship to different political ideologies, different material conditions that just gets totally glossed over. Like, you know, the pigs said that they needed to sleep in the beds because they had the biggest (laughs) brains and that's why Stalin was bad. So I don't know. It's like, uh, I really think there's a big removal of nuance. There's a big kind of sublimating everything into higher orders of power. They always want there to be like kind of a divine or an ordained or something explanation for everything. And I mean, that's, I, that's part of the reason that brings me to 
so easily to Sterner is that I grew up, you know, needing to swallow this or that dogma, you know, Christian dogma if I was at church, you know, public education dogma if I was at school, social and political dogma with my friends and with my family, and I just got so, so, so sick of it, and I kept finding faults in the other versions of it that I went to discover for myself that I just, you know, I never gave up trying, and now I'm at this weird, weirdly ambivalent place about it where really what's just left is like a genuine intellectual curiosity to know as much as I can about like our epistemological relationship to the world and our ability to like communicate or at least like have, have a functional interpretation of the real world around us. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I think that, so I had this kind of like strongly individualist aspect of myself that I think has remained prevalent. It's probably, a lot of why I'm an anarchist too, and just not, you know, just not being a fan of authority yeah. ever. And so that was kind of like the appeal of the Ayn Rand, at a you know to a certain extent. And I think that that streak has remained consistent. And as I've shed off or you know gotten more acquainted with more like anarchist ideas, leftist leftism in general, rather, it was really kind of cool to see. Sterner as that kind of like answer to that bullshit kind of Ayn Rand like libertarian thing like oh well there's a totally different form of egoism from the left yeah that I think is pretty fucking cool I don't know I I think it's awesome I fucking the whole concept it's just so like it's so counterintuitive in particular to the way that you know most the sort of common conception of like a communist or anarchist or what have you, you know, it's like the state does stuff, you know, that's, and it's not exactly yeah. how it works. Well, there's, um, there's definitely a current of trying to sublimate that kind of rebellious instinct into a more capitalist framework. And that's why you have like the fucking libertarian party and guys with fucking bow ties and ANCAP ball profile pictures running around all over the internet. And that's why when I look up secondary literature on Sterner and I'm including keywords to find out what like his and other <laughs> thinkers positions are on particular topics, I come across articles hosted on fucking Mises.org like, what are the differences between (laughs) Sterner and Ayn Rand's egoism? Like, go fuck yourself, you fucking idiot. Like, how could you possibly pick up a book by Sterner and then pick up a book by Ayn Rand and be like, these are even fucking remotely the same. You would literally have to be doing selective reading and cherry picking to reinforce your own already held beliefs. And I, I just, Sterner would call you a fucking idiot. He would be like, you are thoroughly spooked, my man. <laughs> uh, I'll jump back into the text now. Um, I thought this was a kind of an interesting kind of relation to the author uh, coke references like power knowledge and i'm sure he's referencing foucault here Mm -hmm. and also kind of challenging hegel's notion of the state so i'm going to just read this little passage this uh, this essay will argue that attempts to understand sterner within the structural confines of a hegelian ontology cause a serious misreading of sterner's work while sterner's discussion of the state and the political order does contain assumptions regarding human nature that are essentially individualist in nature and might be seen as the culmination of spirit coming to self-realization as ego, an interpretation that can loosely be called Hegelian. There is something fundamentally different in Stirner's approach that sets him off from the others in the Hegelian tradition. Stirner's criticism of the political domination of the state does not primarily 
have its origins in a discussion of human nature and the heavy ontological language of the Hegelian system. The means by which he attacked the state are primarily epistemological in nature. He is far more interested in the way that state power gains legitimacy within a system of power knowledge than he is in challenging the Hegelian conception of the state as objective spirit. To Stirner, the modern state legitimates itself through creating the illusion of fixed and essential ideas. And by convincing the population that it has discovered immutable truth, only by understanding Stirner's attack on what he called the fixed idea will his position make any sense. In short, rather than being the last Hegelian, Stirner might just as easily have been said to be the first post-structuralist in offering the first modern epistemological critique of the way in which state power is legitimated through the nexus of power knowledge contained within the dominant culture. Got that is, and that's such a strong passage uh, for a lot of reasons. But I think that the the very most important thing in there is the the distinction between somebody like Hegel, who is trying to make ontological claims about objective reality and and tie everything in polit- politics and history and sociology back into that, right? Because that's like a, a, that's often, if not almost all the time, the pursuit of philosophy is to determine how right. to live or how to govern or, you know, it's not just what is our purpose because what is our purpose is the, you know, predecessor to what do I do, which is the real question about philosophy. And Stirner, uh, yeah, I mean, I really can't argue with the claim that his critique functions in much the same way that a post-structuralist or a post-modernist critique of, say, Hegelian idealism would function, which is to say that these things aren't just unknown things that can be known, right? These are potentially unknowable things. And so instead of having to be in this mode where we're always trying to capture some form of objective knowledge that we can finally, you know, touch the real, which is not a real thing that we can do as far as we know... Sterner is saying you have to be realistic and operate under the assumption that everybody is operating just within whatever epistemological framework they have. And there's, there's a lot of ways to say that Sterner isn't a, you know, solipsistic in his philosophy. But just for the, the, the shorthand of it, he kind of engages in a bit of solipsism, right? Each of us has our own unknowable character and social phenomenon is just an interrelationship of these kind of like uncontainable unexpressible things and so what that results in is that instead of having like this grand historical progression towards an end or this unified kind of monistic uh, conception of history you have just a long string of particularities and they're they're kind of this web of intersubjectivity that's always weaving between them and in between their understandings of each other and their ability to to have the language or the mental language to categorize these things and yeah I mean you didn't really see that kind of thing crop up later in until much later in European philosophy, especially with the French post-structuralists. And so do you think, uh, I mean, it might be good to kind of like separate and maybe explain a little bit about what like ontology is versus epistemology. Right. So uh, ontological claims or ontological investigation is an investigation of the real. It's an investigation of what exists uh, in an objective fashion too. It, it, it claim an ontological claim about something existing is a claim that outside of anybody's perspective, outside of any particular subject's uh, ability to conceive of something 
it is there. It has object permanence and it has certain immutable characteristics that are it, that is the thing. And epistemology is our relationship to language and meaning and uh, sensory perception and all of these things that mediate between the subject and the objective world. So like my ability to see color, which is really just light bouncing off of things, which gives me depth perception and gives me all these things, that is an epistemological relationship that I have to the world, the same as my ability to hear you speak or my ability to recognize that a square is a square and a circle is a circle. Whether or not those things truly are, I'm doing great big air quotes here, truly are squares <laughs> and circles is an ontological concern. That's something that somebody like Hegel or Plato with his, uh, his world of perfect forms would be very concerned with. And then you have you know, people who are more con concerned with the epistemological side of it, that would be somebody who's questioning perception, questioning ability to know things. That's people like Scherner or, you know, your Diogenes of Sinope or whoever. Any Anybody that would typically in uh, philosophy be labeled a sophist is usually the, the kind of term du jour for people who have a, a, a great epistemological concern about knowability. And so... In particular, Hegel had his sort of no notion of like the world spirit, yeah, <laughs> which you kind of kind of spoke on a little bit of that sort of like unified like I guess logical flow of history. Yeah, it's it's this fixed idea, which is a, a, a phrase Stirner uses, and I would use one that's not lifted straight from him if I could think of a better one. But it's a really really good way to think about these things. It's kind of like you notice that history has kind of a curvature to it, or it has a particular kind of uh, tendency to move towards a couple of things. And so your initial thought is, oh, that's the way things are. That is an objective kind of spirit, or it has a, th that movement is, a, is an ontological uh, assertion that you, you're suddenly convinced of about the world. You know, um, and so you say, oh, history will keep moving in that direction. Or, oh, these are the reasons that propel history in that direction. They will continue to propel history in these and these directions. And there's, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that kind of analysis. But there's a tendency with human beings to take those models and turn them into something outside of just your mode of reasoning, just your heuristic tool that you're using to understand the universe, and turn them into something that you perceive as objective fact, something that's greater than you, and something that kind of rules over you, whether it's something to be aspired towards, something to be avoided, uh, whatever the case may be. And once things reach that capacity of being their own entity, uh, then you you become alienated yourself from yourself in by becoming subservient to that fixed idea and that's why i think the phrase fixed idea is such a smart one because it reminds you that it's actually still in your head right you're not actually ruled by this external thing you're ruled by an internal thing that you've convinced yourself is an externality <laughs> damn that's good um, and I think the link here to the post-structuralist is in that sort of epistemological approach that you see, I think, in particular in Foucault, as I kind of mm -hmm. mentioned, when I think Koch is really kind of hitting on when he's talking about power knowledge, which is def definitely something straight out of Foucault. And Foucault had even the idea of the episteme, episteme, episteme. I'm not sure what the <laughs> actual, yeah, the pronunci pronunciation there is, but um, it's sort of related to these sort of epistemological epochs, if you will, within philosophy itself. 
Yeah, um, I don't know a whole lot about that in particular, but it does seem like history goes through, you know, different versions of epistemology are in fashion at different times. Oh, we can know reality. Oh, it's divine to us by God. Like, I mean, philosophy had its roots in theology, you know, and theology was, didn't give half a shit about epistemology 99% of the time. It was all ontological claims. It was all explanations for the universe. And so there's kind of an unmooring from being convinced that we can make objectively factual claims about reality. And that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable, right? It's the typical argument that you hear against postmodernism. Oh, well, postmodernism doesn't tell me what to do, you know? So what use is it? It doesn't. And I'm like, well, it, it tells you what traps not to fall into when you're trying to figure out what to do. It's a, it's a tool that can help you see through the, some of the snake oil salesmanship of philosophy. You know, maybe if you read Hegel's last treatise and you were like, oh, the Prussian state really is the culmination of objective spirit. Why, why can't we just go back to that time? You know, let's make Prussia great again. Like, it, that's the kind of trap that you fall into. And it happens in right. more and more subtle forms. And that's why... You know, that's why people like Stirner didn't just attack uh, Christian morality. They also attacked Feuerbach for converting Christian morality into humanist morality, into this, that, and the other thing, because they're what we've already known, right? I, I think that that's just... Um, Stirner is such a... To, to borrow a Deleuzean term, Stirner is such an insanely oriented uh, line of flight away from the kind of territorialization of continental German philosophy at that time that he's, I mean, he's radical. He's, he's definitely radical in a sense that even I don't think that you could consider somebody like Marx to be radical. Um, right. He's, he's completely, yeah, he's a lot more fundamental, yeah. I think, in his approach. Exactly. He, he really gets down to basics. I think that there's... There's a there's a weird gleeful like deconstructionism to Stirner that I both just kind of instinctively love and also yeah. really really see the kind of like utilitarian merit of it if you really are trying to use philosophy to live the best kind of life that you can live. Yeah, I mean I definitely agree and I definitely like I said I already see there's a sort of a parallel project between uh Stirner and Derrida, but I'll let's go back to the text itself. And here we have uh, Coase going to sort of go into a little bit about individualism, politics, the modern state, and a little bit about Stirner's critique of the state itself. For Max Stirner, the state is an enemy. In the state, individuals must sacrifice their labor, body, and freedom to a collective called the state. The government needs money, so it takes property and labor. It subordinates human beings to its will and crushes them if they resist. The state is therefore the enemy of all human beings. Hell yeah. I'm, I'm just going to give that a little bit of applause. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I like it a lot. And it, I think that that's, uh, it's a reflection of like an instinct that pretty much all human beings have, right? It's like you, somebody tells you what to do, even if it was what you're going to do anyway. You don't want to do it anymore. You're like, no, fuck you. You don't tell me what to do. And we could all easily get along telling each other fuck you you don't tell me what to do we could have like the most <laughs> fuck you i won't do what you yeah, tell fuck me fuck you i won't do what you tell me we could all have like the most like affable fucking like irreverent kind of like cooperative society possible and i think there's 
that's where people get hung up on Stirner's. They're like, oh, you know, he just wants to tear everything down. Uh, you know, he's, he doesn't want to build anything up in its place. And I'm like, what would you what would you put in its place that wouldn't function like the thing you just yeah, tore exactly. down? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think for me, that's why, like, I'm very much, I've gotten way more anti-statist over the last couple of years. And I think this is particular. I definitely am all about, like, I'm very skeptical of of state power in terms of e- even a socialist or communist oriented state. I think is is very dangerous to reproduce those very same conditions. Oh yeah, it definitely can be. And I mean, you have better examples and worse examples, just like you had with fucking you know liberal democracies and parliamentary monarchies. There's going to be better and worse versions of everything because there's going to be different interests and different kind of particular material conditions at play and stuff. But uh, yeah, I think there's there's something really profound about the way that Stirner really wants to escape the replicating of the old systems of domination and of social control and of the way that we kind of take police care of each other. Oh, you want to be part of the in-group, don't you? You want to be fulfilling your social duties as part of the in-group, don't you? So you should do such and such thing, or don't you think such and such thing isn't good to do? Um, And it just, there's, it's, it's weird because I've, I've read this piece a few times now and I'm surprised that more people don't immediately think to themselves, oh, that's reminiscent of Deleuze and Guattari, or oh, that's reminiscent of Derrida, or that's reminiscent of Foucault, because it, the, the profound way that they analyze power relationships both in an economic and outside of an economic context and in all of their particularities is just is really powerful. And there's, ev- I mean, there's even some modernist writers who do that too. Murray fucking Bookchin wrote a bunch of stuff about this. Who would have who would have balked at the names of Stirner and and who would have thought Foucault should have been thrown out the window. <laughs> yeah, I think uh actually Bookchin early on was kind of like on board with Stirner but then he kind of later um <laughs> kind of renounced him a lot. Just like everything with Bookchin. <laughs> if Bookchin right. didn't have at least uh one flip-flop on a subject, he never really <laughs> analyzed it. If you are interested, I think uh, this was a fantastic article that really delved into kind of, in particular, Derrida's opinions on this kind of situation that I just did with uh, Chris and Day from Mandatory OT. Mm -hmm. It's a Saul Newman piece titled uh, Derrida's Deconstruction of Authority. And I don't know if you listened to that that show or not. I haven't heard that one yet. Uh, We didn't get that deeply into the actual text itself we got kind of a little bit sidetracked but the article itself is is fucking great hell yeah um, i highly highly recommend it i think you dig it um it's along the uh, very much along the lines of kind of the the topics we're just delving into in terms of reproducing the same you know social relations that you're trying to overthrow yeah there was another piece that i read recently um i'm just pulling it up now that is also by Saul Newman, uh, called Empiricism, Pluralism, and Politics in Deleuze and Stirner. And I read that as part of my supplemental reading for this episode and found it to be, outside of the text that we're talking about right now, probably one of the most interesting things that I've seen tying Stirner to the post-structuralist tradition. And especially it was was nice for me because out of the post-structuralists, I am the most familiar with Deleuze, so. That's cool. I have to ch- is it, was that on Anarchist Library? Yeah, just like everything good, man. Yeah, right? Just like everything yeah. good in the world. 
But well, before we get too sidetracked down that road, I'm okay. gonna go ahead and delve in here too. So, I thought it was interesting that Coke kind of discusses Stirner's conception of man, which was r- very extremely reminiscent of Foucault. And I'm going to read an actual quote from Foucault okay. that says, man is, an, man is an invention of recent date and one perhaps nearing its end. And then I'll read the actual text and this will make a little bit more sense in context. The liberal revolutions of the 17th and 18th centuries did not free the individual from the state, but made the individual subservient to the state. Citizen, citizenship is the value promoted in the state. The liberal revolutions created the idea of the citizen and then subjected the people to it. And what can be read as an attack on the organic description of the state presented by Hegel, Stirner argued that social liberalism seeks to generate the idea that the state has a body, not the individual. The body must be nurtured with all doing their part to support it. What Stirner called humane liberalism, more in the tradition of Kant, sought to obliterate the concept of self and replace it with the generalized concept man, to which all would owe their allegiance in the modern state. Both of these forms of liberalism create the dream of freedom, but the promise cannot be fulfilled. In fact, the freedom is not real. It lives in the realm of dreams. This is what Stirner called ownness. Ownness is personal and internal. It is not linked to the authority of the state. I am my own only when I am master of myself, instead of being mastered either by sensuality or by anything else, God, man, authority, law, state, church, onus cannot be achieved within the two modern political tra- traditions, socialism and liberalism. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. And it's important to note that what Stirner refers to as social liberalism is like essentially what Marx was putting forth as socialist ideology. So that's a bit of Stirner just being a spicy bitch, really. Is he's saying <laughs> that's not socialism, that's just social liberalism. Uh, I'd I'd love to hear his critique of Nordic style social democracy. Is as I guess my input that to that to that. But um, it's interesting how he distinct he makes ownness a distinct thing from freedom because freedom is kind of this liberal conception of what it means to to be free from something, but it still involves being subservient subservient to the state and subservient to you know man with a capital M or humanity with a capital H or whatever the case may be. And uh, I don't think it's discussed directly in this piece, but there's a term that Stirner uses a couple of times in Der Einzige where he says that we take police care of each other. And that's really what I think a lot of like jingoistic kind of saber rattling, oh, we have freedom is, is it's us saying to each other, well, you're free here, right? I'm free. We both feel free. So let's defend the state that rules over us that makes us so free. And it's this kind of insane thing, sure. And it's easy for socialists to see that it's insane when it's happening in a capitalist liberal framework. But he's saying like, look, as much as there may be nuanced qualitative distinctions between the version of that that happens in liberalism and the version of that that happens in socialism, ultimately, you're reproducing a form of dependency upon authority. And this dependency on authority, uh, whatever economic system it comes under, still serves to alienate the self, the constantly evolving, the kind of unknowable, overflowing self from itself. It causes you to compartmentalize yourself and become alienated. And it's especially insidious because it happens in this way, even with just something as simple as like nationalist kind of jingoist rhetoric, it it takes a mostly non-economic form. 
And I think that that's why Stirner in particular is such a good supplement to reading somebody like Marx because Marx has is so, so good at elucidating economic contradictions and talking about different modes of economic power. But you need somebody like Stirner to remind you that you can't – it's not all reducible to that just because that's a major factor in everything. There are these – behaviors that happen both internally and externally, social and individual behaviors and social and individual desires that weigh in on things. And that's the reason why the same economic situation will go down differently, you know, in different parts of the world or with different, maybe racialized or gendered interests involved or just having an in-group, like the fucking Doctor Who fans versus Star Trek fans or whatever. You know, all of these things represent kind of a culminating identity that people come to rely on. Oh, I'm an American. Oh, I'm a, a, a Doctor Who fan. Oh, I'm a furry, whatever. It's like, sure, you might be an American furry who likes Doctor Who, but those <laughs> things don't exhaust you. You are so much more than those things, and not just now, like at all times. Um, and we need a language of politics, and we need a language of philosophy that acknowledges that and yeah, I mean, Stirner, Foucault, Deleuze, uh, Derrida, they all made very, I think, uh, admirable stabs at trying to get past that veil of, what would you even call it? It's because it's not economic, so it's not capitalist realism. It's like humane realism. <laughs> or it's like the way that, because um, I read another piece too to kind of supplement this, was that ideology itself is fu- it's functioning at the level of the individual mm-hmm. and individual desires as well. So it's a little bit more nuanced than just this like kind of broad economic critique that Marx is offering up. And I think that is really what in particular the post-structuralists are are grabbing onto. And I think for Foucault in particular, I think his critique is very much so displaying how ideology itself is functioning as the within this sort of like network. Yeah. Rather than it being beamed like top down from the bourgeoisie to the working class, like it's a lot more uh, distributed than that. There's sort of like if you visualized power knowledge, you know, it would look very much like a decentralized uh, computer network. And there's different nodes, and there's perhaps you know there's hubs, and there's different sections. You know what I mean? So it sort of would resemble almost like the internet, like or if you look at the the way that the U.S. looks at night, like if you're flying yeah. above, you would see like bright centers of light over the cities, but then, you know, there's these little, you know, sort of webs all connecting everything. And yes, yeah, some are bigger, some are smaller, but they're all interrelated within a, a kind of a, a whole, a greater whole, right? Yeah, well, and it's like, it's it's easy to think that it's not that complex and it's easy to not want to engage with that like insane web of particularity because wouldn't it be nice if like the problems of the world were just one primary contradiction of economics or if they were just the Illuminati, right? Like we could just bomb the Illuminati headquarters and be done with it all. But that's, that's not the way it is. And that's not the way power disseminates itself. And it's certainly not the way power protects itself. And it's always doing it asymmetrically. It's always finding new and more insidious ways to do it. And especially once doing it in, in the matter, using economics as its basis becomes, you know, not functional anymore, they're going to pursue other avenues. Uh, and that's why, like, I think it's really important to mention even the ideology of 
you know, even collectivist ideologies are still functioning at the level of the individual. They're taking your desires and they're saying, you're, the best way for you to find personal fulfillment in these desires is to sublimate yourself to a greater historical cause and then in service of that cause you can find the satisfaction that you were looking for. There's never actually an engagement on the individual part in terms of ideology with the whole of the world. You're, you can, you're not psychically connected to other people. It's just not that way. You, everything that goes on in your head is happening in the internal world. Even your sensory perceptions of the world, influenced as they are by it, are an internal phenomenon. And it, there's just something that... Uh, and that's what's interesting about Stirner, particularly is he saw the danger in that way before so many other thinkers did. And yeah. there's also this, we talked about in the, the most recent episode where we talked about Stirner of the concept of the Erstadt, the, de, the Deleuze and Erstadt, but uh, it's the state coming into itself all at once, existing all at once and, and imminently as a, as a power structure that is at the same time self-replicating and defensive. And that was, you know, when Stirner refers to the state, he doesn't just refer to the bureaucracy. He doesn't just refer to the powerful people. He refers to the ideology, the yeah, messaging, exactly. the propaganda, the social norms, and everything that comes along with that. And it, it's so refreshingly mirrored in the work of the post-structuralists uh, that just... Yeah, it, I mean, it's nice to see that these pieces are available online so that more people can really dissect kind of the ideological connection here. Because usually the closest we get is like, oh, Scherner kind of influenced Nietzsche, kind of influenced Camus, end of story. And that's really only not even the half of it. Oh, yeah. And I think, too, like, and even the piece that, that you know, the quotes that I read, I think are getting towards to the metaphysics, like the state as this sort of metaphysical entity. Yeah. And sublim subliminating yourself to this metaphysical concept, whether that be through liberalism or through socialism, is the idea of the this metaphysical state, quote on you know in quotes, that you must kind of subordinate your own will to. Right. Yeah, I mean, and that is, I think, I think that's it. Is that the people want to act like the metaphysics of politics are kind of secondary, right? They're kind of a bit of navel-gazing, and they're, they don't really contribute anything to practical political theory. But th I think that Stirner's value and, and Foucault's value and Derrida and Deleuze is not in this kind of like wanking off into books, like closing yourself off into a theoretical corner. I think that the reason that they're all so adamant about deconstructing you know, practical philosophy down to its most basic elements is because they really do want it to work. They don't want it to be this machine that they didn't mean to build that has unintended consequences and ends up becoming more of a problem than a solution. They really do want to progress the human condition or maybe, I, you know, or whatever, whatever the version of it is in their internal world that they're seeking after. And, uh, you know, I, I, all, far be it from me to say that there is a kind of de facto human condition, but I think generally human beings do like to communicate their ideas to each other. We get lonely if we feel like we're not well understood. And so it's it's easy to see why a philosopher who maybe spent a few years putzing around his apartment in, in Berlin or Paris might 
take the time to write these things down and be like, hey, you guys, I think I might have figured out uh, a way that we can talk to each other more honestly and, uh, you know, have like more productive discourse uh, about things. And you're really not going to like it, but uh, <laughs> I think maybe you should think about it. I think that's kind of the position these guys are often put in. Yeah, and I think you really have to, like, you have to contextualize it as well, like, the time period that these people are, you know, coming, they're coming of age, etc. And I think that a lot of them are critics of postmodernity rather than postmodernists, if that makes sense. Yeah. And in the context of, like, the invention of the nuclear bomb, the sort of... I guess the failures of the Soviet Union and I don't know if Maoist China probably doesn't quite play as much into it, but certainly the failures of the Soviet Union in particular, I think the, the 1956 um, Hungarian rebellion or what have you in particular, I think what, and then in 68 as well, like you have to contextualize where these guys are coming from and, what influenced their their approach to say, whoa, whoa, this whole modernist project is totally, you know, there's a lot of flaws. Look, look at what rationality and all of this shit has brought us. It's brought us to the brink of destroying our ability to exist on this planet. So fucking, whoa, let's slow down. Let's reevaluate all of this shit. And I think that is what gets lost in a lot of the critiques that you see of, of these thinkers. Well, and I mean, especially of Stirner, I would say, because a lot of people um, say that, like, Stirner is the ultimate rational guy, right? He's the ultimate, like, oh, let's break it all the way down to absolute fucking, like, bare mathematical uh, particles of philosophical knowledge or whatever. But I really don't think he is that. I think he's more just in a unafraid realist who recognizes kind of the the weird and unknowable Camus would call it absurd position of a person who lives in the world that we do and that Stirner did and he really just instead of wanting us to have some kind of like grand narrative to hitch ourselves to so that we can go off and die he's like I think that there's room in this life for you to be irrational for you to be a person who loves and makes stupid decisions and enjoys themselves and climbs a tree just for fun and is just like a goofy motherfucker basically and there's like there's this weird exultant like joyousness this freedom from everything this ownness that Stirner would call it I guess that is so often overlooked in his work he's just seen as this like cynical like none of that will work for me kind of guy i think sterner wanted us to revel in the weird particularities of life and the fact that some things are unknowable or not overcomable or 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 this that and the other thing and to just to just be uh, a person but not in a sappy like actualizing my humanity kind of way just in recognizing that like in whatever shape in whatever form I'm here, the creative nothing, the the internal kind of overflowing, malleable, undefinable world that, as far as I can tell, that exists, and I may as well just fucking embrace it. It's not even like a should. It's just kind of a may as well. <laughs> that really flows perfectly into this sort of, I'll read from the text, because it really kind of really digs into exactly what you're talking about and kind of fleshing out Stirner's conception of the individual. They reject the idea that the individual is unique. 
For Sterner, the unique character of each human being is undeniable and critically important. This conclusion stems from a resolute ontological position. Sterner means the individual in the strictest sense of the word. Only the individual has real being. Only organisms think, feel pain, breathe, live, and procreate. Each is therefore a repository of unique experience and ideas. To subordinate this uniqueness to any concept of state, collective union, or society that would negate this ontological reality would be an affront to reason. Liberals do not see man, but only the concept of man. They do not allow room for individuals. The individual man is refused. Only the general human being is revered. The true individual must desecrate all that the state demands. Aware that the state has power, Sterner comments, it would be foolish to assert that there is no power above mine. Only the attitude that I take toward it will be quite another than that of the religious age. I shall be the enemy of every higher power. <laughs> uh, there's something really cool about that, man. Uh, it's like the kind of Hume, the David Humean kind of idea of like, let's not derive an ought from an is, right? It's not, I want to rationalize away all the powers above mine. It's that I need to recognize that the instinct that drives that is the fact that I want them gone. It's not that I don't think they're there. It's that I wish that they weren't. And the sooner that you have that honest moment of reflection with yourself and say, I'm not trying to ignore or imagine myself out from under these structures of power from the state, from capitalism, whatever... I need to place myself in direct and, and outstanding opposition to them if for no other reason than I want to, you know? From where do my wants come? From, from a place as ineffable as anything, you know? Was it the way I was raised? Is it who I am? Uh, naturally, did the universe have a plan for me? I don't know, but I'm here and there's no denying it. Not to myself. Uh, and I think that there's that weird kind of tautological reflection of the self, right? The self is the only thing in philosophy that's truly irreducible. Um, everything else can be explained away by one phenomena or another, by one theory or another. But theories of self are just so squishy and so indistinct from one another. And so I, I think it's really, really smart that that's where Sterner st starts his analysis from. Uh, because I think it's just kind of a not a resignation, but just an acknowledgement of the fact that no matter what you do, that's where all of your analysis is going to start from anyways. Desire and interiority and ownness. Uh, and it's probably going to be more powerful and more effective for you if you don't sublimate it into, you know, the cause of man or the cause of God or, you know, let, let man be man's concern. Let God be God's concern. You are your own concern. And it is to you who you need to be responsible. To me, this is just the epitome, the epitome of radicalism. Like, this is the, the radical. Like, if you had to sort of, like, put it in quotes. Yeah. That is radicalism to me, defined, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, even in the traditions which Sterner is kind of lightly ribbing here, like the, the collectivist, socialist traditions, early communism, Marx himself and stuff, uh, that the reason that we call them radical is because they are pursuing a social project that stands starkly outside of the norm, and it is because something they've decided that they want to pursue and they want to convince others to pursue. And Sterner 
you know, typical Max, he just says, why stop there? Why not each of us reach down inside of ourselves and, and draw forth uh, an idea, a plan of action, a want, a need, anything? Because having a random starting point in terms of understanding the universe is unavoidable. Or if there is a way to avoid it, it's functionally unknowable to us, at least at this time. And until there's some kind of ontological proof that says, here's how you can know those things, and everybody can check it and falsify it for themselves, there's no reason to hold yourself to an objective standard that may not exist. Uh, and I just really think that that skepticism and, and, and uh, this phrase that I've mentioned before on your show, that skepticism of skepticism, that <laughs> acknowledgement of our unmoored and, and probably random place, not just in the universe, but in understanding, in the way that we're socialized, in all of these different factors, is the best way to kind of get yourself outside of yourself and start having not an objective analysis, but a functional and productive intersubjective analysis. Hell yeah. But also, I think for Sterner too, it's like the, what I think is kind of valuable in his approach is this sort of idea that, you know, if for us to be fully, like he wants to, with the concept of sort of the union of egoists, it's like each egoist should be a fully actualized person. They should be an individualized, actualized, unique, rather than, like, I guess, I'm trying to say, um, like, that is, so we remove capitalism, like, we, like, because it is an impediment to your ability and individuals to be fully actualized. Yeah. Or whether that be, you know, you're subservient to capital, the liberal state, the, you know, the socialist state, those are in sort of impediments that you have to sort of overcome. Yeah, well, and I think the thing that's really profound about the union of egoists is that it's not a union like a labor union. Of course, the the word that he uses in German uh, has no relationship to the to the English word for labor union because it's not a formal you know distinction. It's not a it's not a body that you have to have membership to and pay dues to and be x amount of ideologically committed to or whatever. It's it's a free association between uh, you know people who have a shared interest or a shared goal, and it's always evolving and it can dissolve at any time. And he, Sterner doesn't even say that those are necessarily the best arrangements for any given person, but he does say that in entering into an arrangement which complicates your situation more than that, there should be some reflection on your part over whether or not that's really kind of fulfilling what you want out of something. People get railroaded into things because they're convinced that if they don't do such and such thing for such and such person or such and such body, that they're not being a good enough whatever they are. And it's that in-group, out-group phenomenon that you need to just completely disabuse yourself of if you want to have honest and, you know, I don't think Scherner uses this language, but to me, that's what gets you fulfilling relationships with other people. That's the only yeah. time that you're truly upfront with somebody is when you don't feel bound to them or right. bound against them or bound by things. There's nothing influencing you except just your honest assessment of another person or a situation or a body or whatever it may be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but moving on, I think, uh, and you touched, I think, here on this idea that the text is going to present 
but I thought this this here has always been sort of something I've agreed with in terms of perhaps the way that ideas get infused or ideology functions. Mm-hmm. Once any authority has the power to determine the ideal to which life should be oriented, the individual is in danger. Ideals get fixed within the laws, code, and practices of the state. Then the butchery goes on here in the name of the law, of the sovereign people, of God, etc. Thus, it is impossible to separate Stoner's rejection of the state's authority from his comments about what he calls the fixed idea. The fixed idea is the basis of modern morality and legal and legality, rather. Applied in the law, the construction of fixed ideas creates the basis for creating the label criminal behavior by which the state can justify its existence. Yeah, I mean, exactly true. Exactly true. Without without the fixed idea, without having somebody somewhere espousing a particular and what they would call a universal moral philosophy, without that, we don't have a barometer to tell what criminal behavior is. We don't have a barometer to tell who should be in charge and who shouldn't and, and who has the right to rule over one another because these things like the right to do something is a fixed idea. You know, can you do it or can you not? Is there a material basis for it? Are you able to interact with the world in a way that makes it happen or can you not? I don't want to hear about, you know, whether or not you have a right to something because as soon as you have a right to something instead of having the means or the ability or whatever, then suddenly there's an objective system in place. There's this third party are kind of acting as an arbitrator between me and you or me and the situation. Meanwhile, in you know, and I I definitely agree with Sterner here. I don't think that there necessarily is a third party, or that if you can't infer any details about the third party, then the assumption of its existence is functionally worthless. Uh, and and you know, all of these things can become fixed ideas. Of course, it was God for so 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 long, and God is where a lot of critiques start. And Sterner's critiques of critiques of God are the important thing because. That it's just that sublimation, you know, maybe it's not God, maybe it's your church group, maybe it's your family, maybe it's this, that, and the other thing. And all of a sudden, in order to be somebody who cares about these groups, you have to conform to a set of ideals, you have to sacrifice your time, you have to sacrifice your own wishes, and become alienated from the parts of yourself that you were trying to embrace, or maybe becoming interested in. And we all do it to different degrees. I don't think there's any totally disabusing yourself of being in the kind of like police care of in-groups and out-groups of people, even a union of egoists, even just having a friend, which is really what a union of egoists is, is when you have a friend. Uh, It comes with weird responsibilities, comes with social situations maybe you weren't ready for, but always being on the the, the, not impartial, but in fact, just kind of like excitedly partial about things, just recognizing that you have biases and and trying to work out why you have biases and and looking at these things as things that can be analyzed, but maybe not all the way to a conclusion. Maybe you can just get some useful clues out of them or whatever. I think there's something really, really valuable to that, and I think it prevents us from falling into this fatalistic trap of a lot of philosophy, which is that if you don't have a thesis at the end of your book about exactly why everything is, then you failed. And, you know, maybe you're a fucking, maybe you're Emmanuel Kent. Maybe you're just somebody's (laughs) dad in rural (laughs) Iowa. Everybody feels that way. You know, it's an internalized 
thing about the universe. And maybe it was handed to us by religion. Maybe it's something that we built up ourselves after a fashion. Maybe it came from agricultural organization. Maybe it's a confluence of uh, those things and other things. It's, it's really hard to say. And I think if we want to have an honest interrogation of that, we have to just always be in this position where we're reminding ourselves that it's okay to be particular. It's okay to be nominal because unfortunately that's what we have to do. That's the real, yeah. like, that's where we are. Yeah, absolutely. I think acknowledging that issue is like a big part of it. It's like no one wants to acknowledge that issue and they want to sort of sweep it under the rug. Well, you, you have to, you can't, you have to confront that head on. And I think maybe that's, what I think appeals to me about Stirner and the post-structuralist in general is it's like, yeah, there's a relativity here, but yeah, we have, you have to deal with it. How else? Like, yep. You can't just ignore it. What are you going to do? You're just going to draw some universal <laughs> fixed idea out of nowhere. You're, I mean, that's always going to be a calculation. That calculation is going to be contingent upon circumstances. And so you have to be aware of that instead of just sort of hand-waving it away, like, oh, well, we'll build some universal out of what? Right, exactly. To me, it's like the the big thing is, I think, what Sterner really helps me with is instead of saying, here's why I'm right, I've begun saying things like, here's why this is what I want. And it just creates such a more honest dialogue than having somebody who is trying to act as an arbiter of truth. In, in a situation where it doesn't make any sense. Like, okay, maybe with like a straight mathematical claim like <laughs> 2 plus 2 equals 4, you can be like, okay, I'm right. Anything softer than that, even just like fucking basic physical properties of the universe are subject to such contentious debate that to be like, nope, I finally discovered the kernel of truth. It makes me feel like you're you're like an early Gnostic Christian mystic who's just like, I wrote a book, guys. I'm right about everything. Like... <laughs> It's really interesting. I've uh, interacted with a couple of people on Twitter, uh, one in particular that is a theological Marxist. Oh, wow. And talks about how through, I think, uh, Badu and uh, Zizek that you can sort of somehow find the space for a universal. And I, I'm not uh, you know, equipped enough to speak to that articulately now, but I, just to throw that out there. There, are, there is that claim out there. I'm sure there is. People will find a universal wherever they think they can. Um, I even catch myself finding universals all the time. It's a, it's a constant struggle to not be beholden to something. Because we're pattern-seeking creatures, right? I mean, fundamentally, we evolved in a way that was it was advantageous for us to try and come up with rules of thumb that could predict things accurately. And the better we got at that, the more of us survived. So now we're kind of in this position where we're like, well, we should just be able to ride that out, right? Eventually we'll get to like objective, knowable truth, right? And I think there's really just a hard wall that fucking stops us from doing that. And it's the fact that we're we're sensory beings who are composed of particular atoms and, and molecules and stuff that are distinct from one another. In order to have a perfectly agreed upon conception of the universe, wouldn't we all have to be essentially the same consciousness? And you can argue semantically that we are. You can do like the Spinozan thing. Like, okay, all of humanity is interconnected in these ways and we're all just different facets of the thing. But it's like, okay, but then where do facets come from? What's a facet? <laughs> what distincts it? What makes it distinct from the, the, the monistic center? You know? If it's truly monistic, wouldn't it be featureless? 
uh, there's the, the the mind reels, you know. I you, and that's I think that's what people don't like about quote unquote Sterner guys or egoists, <laughs> which is a term I really hate. Um, I call us Sterner guys, uh, <laughs> but they really they really they really hate about us is it's like no matter what your position is, you could be a, a utilitarian, you could be a, a secular humanist, you could be a straight up Marxist or whatever, and we're just like. We always are that guy popping out of the bushes. Like, but why? (laughs) 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 Oh, man. Yes. So true. But I mean, that's always been who I've been in life. Even before I was interested in philosophy, (laughs) I was just like, but why? All the time. An annoying little kid. So who knows? Maybe that's just my creative nothing overflowing in its particular way. Uh, Overflowing like a... Perhaps a, a fecundity? <laughs> yeah, like something incredibly fecund. And uh, oh God, what was the other word that he always used? <laughs> uh, it'll come to me once we're off mic. I'm just going to look right? silly for right now. Uh, but uh, let's... Uh, so the second portion of the kind of section of the text here is going into Sterner's critique of transcendentalism and the fixed idea. So we'll flesh that out a little bit. And I think this next portion of the text definitely reminded me of uh, kind of this of the uh, Derridian critique in particular of a part of Derrida, a big part of Derrida's project was this idea of a bias towards the metaphysics of presence within Western philosophy. Mm. And he really, really harped on this kind of um, binary between writing and speech and how speech is preferred because the speaker is, present you're there and there's that is sort of i guess the idea being there's like a lack of ambiguity because you're interacting directly with the speech rather than the text um is removed and there's a lot more slipper there's a you know i guess the perception is there's a lot more ability to misinterpret right a bit of a roland barth's death of the author yeah kind of exactly effect. exactly um so i'm going to read this little portion here To understand uh, Stirner's attack on the authority of the state, his attitudes toward Western philosophic traditions must be examined. Stirner treated Western conception of the idea as a historical phenomenon. It has changed from the early Greek civilization to the present. The ancient sophists understood that the mind was a weapon, a means to survival, and that kind of goes to what you were getting at a bit ago. Truth was generated as the mind interacted with nature, but the world of nature was characterized by flux and changed. It was not stable. Therefore, truth must also be in a constant state of transition. God, I love sophistry. <laughs> this is an unsettling position for philosophy, because philosophy has treated the inability to have fixed and eternal truths as a fundamental flaw in the human character. To overcome this weakness, rather, Western philosophers since Plato have created the illusion of stability. This error constitutes continues within the modern traditions in philosophy as well yeah i mean i love that i love that so much uh i remember being uh interested in plato and hearing about his world of perfect forms right like people would ask him okay so what makes a chair different from a table and he's like well somewhere maybe not in the material plane there's a perfect chair and all chairs are an imperfect copy of that chair. And all tables are an imperfect copy of this perfect table idea that exists in the world of forms. And it's like, bro, you just made up, that's just heaven, right? That's just like, I, of course, this is, he's 
pre-Christian, but it's just like that's just heaven, man. Like you've just you've just invented something that kind of explains away the biggest hole in your philosophical idea. And that's what really, really, really intrigues me about Stirner is he's kind of the guy who makes you realize every time, if you just look at the history of philosophy and, and even modern philosophy, and every time you see a hole where somebody had to like patch it up with a perfect world of forms or like patch it up with a categorical imperative or, you know, patch it up with a, a world spirit or whatever, if you just like say, no, we're going to interrogate that and we're going to dive deeper into that, the only thing that you can't make any headway on is the internal world of the self, the particular each of us that we're all starting from. That's kind of the irreducible minimum there. And um, maybe it is reducible in, a, in another world to another entity, but it's not to us. And so it's from, it's from where each of us starts. And that's that's so nauseating you know that's like what camus called absurdity and and um what uh was it sartre who wrote nausea what sartre's nausea was basically about it was that like uncomfortableness with the imbalance of like we wish we had a narrative that explained all of this away but then we don't and as it says in this text, you know, this is an unsettling position of philosophy. Philosophy treats that inability to have fixed an eternal truth as a fundamental flaw. And it t it really takes guys like Stirner, and I think actually Camus really uh, kind of elucidated this the best with his with uh, the myth of Sisyphus, which is that we we can't shy away from this. We literally don't have a choice. Even in shying away from it, we resign ourselves to it. So why not face it boldly? Why not face it joyously? Since literally every other option is worse. And I mean, I don't know. I uh, I hate to be like, you know, philosophy. A lot of what we consider philosophy essentially should have ended with Stirner and Camus. But I really do think that about a lot of things. I think that a lot of philosophers, especially since then, have been grasping for these metaphysical you know, transcendental narratives about the world. And there's just simply nothing to get traction on with there. Or if, you know, there's no way to feel traction, which is really what they want. They don't want to know, they don't want to have traction or not have it. They want to have the sensory experience of feeling like they've communed with the real. And we just, we're probably not ever going to get that. And that's okay. You know, it's, it's okay to feel unfulfilled. You're going to feel hungry later. You can eat a sandwich <laughs> and fix that problem. You know, you're, you're going to transition from state to state, from thought to thought. So don't get hung up on the fact that you're not going to solve the universe. You know, that you're, you're not going to build a supercomputer that tells you the answer is 42 and then you have to spend another million years <laughs> figuring out the question. Yeah, be, be okay with uncertainty. Be okay with your sort of Lacanian lack and understand it and like accept that rather than I think a lot of the problems are that some like the sort of Christian underpinning of the West in particular is always driving us to desire that kind of completeness that whole that unity that fulfillment and I in the text I think even does a really good job here of discussing how Christianity sort of infused that essentialism into the West. Mm -hmm. In the modern period, humans have been abandoned, have beings have abandoned the sophist notion that the truth does not present itself in absolutes. Sterner lays much of the blame of, for this illusion at the doorstep of Christianity. 
It is the rise of Christianity that created the lie of spirit and separated humans from contact with the world. Spirit now becomes the focal point of human life and activity. Once we create this folly, the wheels in the head of spirituality, we are beckoned to the fixed idea. When human beings invented the idea of spirit in order to give themselves spirituality, this foundation, the foundation was led for this fixed idea. The spirit within the individual is perceived to be that which endures in the human being. The spirit transcends the body and the finite character of corporeal experience. But spirituality teaches humans not to respect what is in the individual, but to only care for the image of man as a higher enduring essence. Human beings come to see each other as ghosts and spirits rather than flesh and blood. The spirituality of Christianity is mirrored and reinforced in the philosophic search for the fixed idea. Humanism is just the most recent metamorphosis of Christianity. The common link is transcendentalism. While Stoner does not specifically mention Kant, the transcendental philosophy of Kant elaborates precisely what Stoner finds so offensive. In the Critique of Pure Reason, Kant develops demonstration of how the mind is capable of engaging in thought outside the natural stimuli from the environment. Kant claims that reason alone can tell us that when we take away the sense impression left by an object, it must still have extension in space and time. I really think that Kant, I've never known exactly what Kant meant. Um, is is Kant's critique of pure reason really about object permanence? Because I think Stirner would have an easy answer to that, which is like, yeah, I get it. You said I pick up the rock now, I walk away from the rock, I come back to the rock, I pick it up, it's still there. Like, it's not remarkable. I, I already know this from the inferred web of particularities that I have. It doesn't imply this eternal world outside of my perception and because it could just as easily be an internally, you know, sensory perception based illusion. And I think to Stirner, he's kind of engaging in that early post-structuralist critique, which is to say, uh, whether or not I believe in a transcendental world of object permanence, I'm functionally experiencing it all the time. And so I treat it as my reality. And it's not that special. Kant, you know, maybe get over yourself a little bit. Maybe get outside of Konigsberg once in your entire fucking life. <laughs> right. Yeah, maybe that's why Kant thought that there was such a rich uh, in, like, world of interiority connected to the real is because that was all he had, man. Dude never left that tiny little strip of Prussia. <laughs> um, so Koch, I think, elaborates a little bit further on this. This demonstration of transcendental reasoning also leads to the conclusion that human beings cannot know essences from their contact with objects, but essences lie only in a transcendental realm beyond our reach. What Kant hoped to deliver with his project was a mode of knowing, concepts that are fixed and unchanging. In constructing such a system, Kant has established a secular defense of the fixed idea and laid the foundation for modern humanism. In a similar fashion to Christian thought, Kant's creation of a transcendental foundation for thought establishes the basis for a universalist morality, adding only the assumption of free will as the first principle of morality. Kant was then prepared to give his universalist formulation of the categorical imperative. Act as if the maximum of your action were to become your will a general law of nature. The more specific practical imperative 
Act so as to treat man in your own person as well as that of anyone else, always as an end, never as merely a means. It is these fixed transcendental claims that laid the groundwork for Kant's universal claim, universalist claims in law and politics. Law can be constructed according to transcendentally conceived notions that have no relation to experience, historical condition, or social custom. Reached transcendentally, conclusions regarding the law are not subject to critique based on any experiential knowledge. Morality and law have been divorced from actual lived sensation. The result is that the fixed transcendental idea now has power to shape human life. From an anarchist perspective, real human beings are now under the power of that which is only an aberration. And this is precisely how Stirner approached the issue. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think that it's really telling how it kind of dissects how Kant just took the the platonic world of forms or the Christian idea of an absolute morality and kind of permutated into his categorical imperative. He said, well, there must be a best way for us all to interact with each other. We have to treat each other as an end. But Stirner is kind of like, well, no, you know, like, look, we, we can't shy away from the fact that we are all means to one another, you know? And that's why when he says, I do not step back shyly from your property, but look upon it always as my own, he's not just talking about property as in terms of like what you own. He's talking about property in terms of the properties of you, your character, the the way that you act, the way that you like things or don't like things, the way that you interact with people in your day-to-day. And he also says, pray you do the, the like with what you call my property. He's saying, look, I know that I can't be an end to you because no matter what you do, you can't escape the starting point of your own subjective position in the universe. And same, I can never escape my own subjective position in the universe from, uh, I can never escape it and, and, and see you as this other me to whom I, I owe my own means because then that just replicates the same. So his point, I think, is not that we should see each other as ends instead of means because that's somehow nobler, but maybe that we should just be honest and noble in our way in which we interact with each other and use each other as means, you know, do it, do it honestly and do it without shying away from the fact that being an interpersonal uh, entity comes with being subject to things and subjecting others to things. And, and maybe it's not uh, denying that, but an awareness of that that can help us really interact with each other in a productive sense. Yeah. It's like be, um, be an egoist that is conscious of it rather than being an egoist that doesn't that is striving sort of not to be an egoist. Exactly. Scherner says we are all egoists essentially, either knowing or unknowing. And he doesn't say it's better to be a knowing one, but he's I mean, he's definitely trying to lead you in that direction. <laughs> it's undoubted. It's you know, you can just tell from the work. And I think the text really goes to like unpacking that well, maybe not that, but um, back to this sort of critique of the transcendental here really well. And kind of, I've, I call this concept like the, I, the universal signifier as mm-hmm. sort of a stand-in for, for God or like that sort of first cause or whatever, like the, the, wor- like the word. <laughs> Remember that? Even like the wor- that sort of thing from Genesis, the word and the word was God. Yeah. And I think yeah, well, that's that's like the concept here. It's, um, yeah, it's like, have you heard the good news? <laughs> yeah. 
this naive transcendentalism also produces political consequences. So here, this is where the rubber sort of meets the road. Mm-hmm. Universal ethics also provides the basis for a universal conception of human history. In the case of Kant, it's argued that human beings have the same basic characteristics, especially the equal power to engage in reasoning. Based on this assumption, a transcendental moral system can be discovered through reason by which individuals can order their lives. Further, if human beings have the same character and are subject to the same unchanging a priori principles of action, it is now possible to create a universal society and a universal universal history based on that fact. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's kind of like what we've been saying. I mean, the, the, there's a reason that Scherner was interested in these things and breaking down what you know, naive transcendentalism is because there are political ramifications to it. This is not just empty theorizing and it's a bit i think part of the reason sterner's works are so short because he got to the point really fast he told you what the point was he told it to you seriously once and as a joke five times and at the end of the day uh if you know if if you're still going to resign yourself to subordinating yourself to fixed ideas then it's going to you know, not get you to the political uh, results that you actually want, the same as it would not get you to the philosophical results that you actually want. And, you know, what, what is it that, further, if human beings have the same character and are subject to the same unchanging a priori principles of action, it is now possible to create a universal society and a universal history based on that fact. And living in a universal society and a universal history is so boring and, and doesn't affirm the individual at all and doesn't, it doesn't. It gives you some of the freedoms you asked for, but it takes away new and unexpected ones. And uh, I mean, I don't want to. Uh, there's always this tendency where I keep thinking, like, this is what Sterner really wanted us to think about. Um, but at the end of the day, I think Sterner really wanted us to form like our own conceptions of interpersonal and and, and social relationships, and. Uh, I mean, it's no, it's no surprise that the, the next section that we're looking at is where we kind of get into the union of egoists, which we've already talked about a little bit. But a lot of people don't realize that the section about the union of egoists called, I think it's called my intercourse, meaning like my <laughs> social relationships with people. Yeah, no, super funny. Insert cum joke here. Uh, but uh, that's like the biggest section of the book. <laughs> Right? People think it's all about the individual, but Sterner basically lays out what the individual is and then spends half of his fucking book or pamphlet or whatever you want to call it talking about what that means for interacting with other people. Yeah, and I think Coke fleshes that out pretty decently here. Um, Sterner rejected such a strategy. I guess that's meaning um, transcendentalism. Yeah. It moves in precisely the wrong direction. The type of universal society described by the liberalism of either Kant or Marx is an affront. To the onus that can only be within the individual, what is needed, according to Sterner, is not a society of men, but a union of egos. Only such a union could really validate the distinct character of each individual. Only such an organization could really respect the differences presented by each unique being. Yeah, I just, I mean, couldn't agree more, really. Ever since I heard about the Union of Egoists, I was like, yeah, man, I have friends. I, they're my favorite <laughs> people in the world. Everybody should have friends. Like, and, and people, I, I think other people who like Sterner get mad at me when I kind of reduce the Union of Egoists to that. But I don't do it in reduction. I do it in, I guess, the kind of you know, Sterner-esque sense of referencing or gesturing towards something, which I'm not 
able to fully explain like you know what's a friend what's a person that you respect what's a person you have to interact with is a union of egoists like me and my neighbors when we get together on the sidewalk to chat about the shit happening in our neighborhood yeah yeah it's everything uh, a union of egoists is is whenever you're just uninhibitedly you know enjoying another person and i think that's beautiful and it's funny because in Stirner's language it often comes off as consumption you know treating other people as your property but i think treating other people as your property is this kind of like weirdly intimate thing it's like extending yourself onto other people it's extending your own relations your properties your things that make you distinct and and interacting with them and it, it's in this crazy world of like particularity you know you're unmoored from from needing it to be any specific thing it's almost like you took acid or whatever <laughs> having a friend having a friend is like the best acid trip in the world sure <laughs> yeah uh you know it's funny too is i had done another episode on this kind of it was an article from of course the anarchist library sort of discussing the relevance of sterner to sort of anarchism uh broadly and in one element of it, he was kind of describing that, um, and it kind of felt really actually kind of pertinent to like us doing this podcast. And I noted that in that episode was like, and the same applies here. It's like you and I are both freely, voluntarily coming together to have this discussion. We're like, we're offering one another's property in a sense, in the in the context of, like, our ideas and our time and so forth. Mm -hmm. And, like, we're both engaged in this, like, mutual relationship where we're both offering things to one another um, as equals. And I think maybe that, this coming together, that's like a real-world sort of example of yeah. how the union of egoists sort of would fu sort of functions. Well, and it's, uh, it's like coming together as unequal, equals right coming together as people who are distinct as unique equals as unique equals exactly as as maybe equals in a in a functional sense in the way that we treat each other but obviously not equal not to say one is better than the other or anything but just to say that we're vastly you know different the things that inform each of our particular interests as much as they might overlap come from such a, a wide and, and different base of things and it's like it's that pluralism, it's that intersubjectivity that really makes interacting with other people worthwhile, not some fucking categorical imperative or, or you know, the fact that God told me to or whatever. It's uh, I'm doing it because I enjoy having this conversation. I go see my friend uh, and smoke weed at their house because <laughs> I enjoy seeing my friend and smoking weed at their house, just like they enjoy having me over to smoke weed, you know? It's... um. Uh, it's very, it's very pl pluralistic and at the same time monistic. You know, it's recognizing that we are all coming from the same place, but we're not coming from an abstracted same place. We're not coming from, oh, we're both people. We're just two things that have decided <laughs> to interact with each other. And that's fine. That's totally fine. Hell yeah. Uh, let's dive into, I guess, the third portion of the text. Yeah. titled Post-Structuralism and the Epistemological Problem with the Fixed Idea. And I thought here the kind of Nietzsche-Sterner Nietzsche connection in terms of their critique of Christianity was really interesting, and I enjoyed the tautology of the line in here. What a human does is human by the very fact that a human does it. 
Yeah, I mean, people will cry semantics at the drop of a hat, but <laughs> semantics are important. I don't I, know. I don't know. There's just something, I don't know. There's a certain, I don't know, lyricalness. There's a like song element to that. I don't know. <laughs> it, uh, but, it, it's kind of inspiring. I mean, if you yeah. heard it in a song, you'd be like, damn, that's a good line. <laughs> that's like a very stone thought, too. It's like, uh, you know, man, like, being a human <laughs> literally it, everything i do is human behavior man it's so wild just I'm doing myself it in the face like yeah that's just human behavior human nature man when i read from the text um to fully understand what sterner is trying to say it is useful to examine what comes after sterner in the same tradition of critical importance to this task is frederick nietzsche while there is some debate over whether or not Nietzsche was familiar with Stirner's work, there is no doubt the two authors shared an epistemological concern over the integrity of the metaphysical foundations of the Western tradition. Nietzsche shared Stirner's distaste for both transcendentalism and the Christian tradition in morality. What Nietzsche adds to the discussion is the genealogical method by which the material origins of moral belief can be identified as products of history and culture, that's some Foucault shit right there. <laughs> For Nietzsche, transcendental moralist, morals set human beings against themselves, denying their true natures. As Stirner put it, what a person does is human, not because it conforms to a concept, but by the very fact that a human does it. Yeah, and I mean, I love that. It's just that plain-spoken factualism, like, you know, we're all operating under the same definitions, right? So... Let's stop pretending that human behavior is ordained from on high and just recognize that it's what whatever people do. It's a it's a heuristic definition. You know, it's something that is kind of assigned as a gesture towards something that we don't have a full explanation for. Just like, you know, you would call me John because you don't have a word for all the things that I am, but I have this handy little shorthand for it. Hi, I'm John. And so that's, you know. That's what we call human behavior. It's it's not this set of things that there are some things that are and aren't. It's just we look at what humans do and we say, oh, that's that's human behavior. Hegel would say it's finding the rational in the real. So, you know, uh, maybe we're not so anti-Hegelian after all. <laughs> <laughs> this next kind of portion I th of the text I thought reminded me a little bit of the signifying chain, which is a Lacanian concept. And I don't know if that's just uh, if that's because I have a great understanding of what Lacan's signifying chain is, but it, at least nominally, it feels like the same thing. And so I'm going to just talk a little bit about chains of signifiers here. Um, so it's in 57 that Lacan introduces the term signifying chain to refer to a series of signifiers which are linked, and then he goes in. Um, into metonymy and desire. A signifying chain can never be complete since it's always possible to add another signifier to it ad infinitum in a way which expresses the eternal nature of desire. For this reason, desire is metonymic. And then the text here, Stirner, Nietzsche, and the contemporary post-structuralist assert a similar criticism of the fixed idea. All deny the possibility of demonstrating the validity of a fixed transcendental universals. There can be no demonstration of universals that cannot be shown to have its validity rest on the assumed validity of another universal, with no validating mechanism other than the connection to other transcendental insertions back through history, such, 
such texts have no original moment in which their truths can be verified. All such fixed ideas, therefore, lack epistemological validity. <laughs> yeah, if you want to propose a philosophical system, uh, you better submit a speed run video that includes <laughs> hand cam so we can see your inputs, because we know that you're actually just passing off other older ideas in new permutations, right? Because metonymy is just kind of like substitution for equivalency, right? Like it's something that's subtly different or has a different connotation, but you're just using it as an updated version of the old signifier. And so if, if you're living in a metonymic chain or a, or a signifying chain where each signifier is a new and evolved version of the previous one, then there's no original source. There's no fucking like Dead Sea Scrolls or tablets written by Moses while he was talking to God or whatever to, to verify everything. And even those don't have a verifiable source because you can't ask God what he said to Moses. You have to trust Moses, right? So there's a there's a break in the metonymic chain at some point when you go far back enough. And so we have to start sourcing our ability to know what's real from the particular, both in history and in, and in modern times, instead of pretending like there was ever a... a gr it's kind of like the make America great again thing, right? It's like make philosophy grounded in the real again. <laughs> it's like it was never grounded in the real. Absolutely. I, this next portion of the text, I think is really good too um in kind of fleshing this out language for such an inquiry is introduced by nietzsche but carried to its full fruition with the post-structuralist in the will to power nietzsche echoes something mentioned by sterner in the ego in his own sterner recalled the time in which mind confronts the world to make a sense of it for survival nietzsche gave a naturalistic interpretation to this claim suggesting that the human need to interpret the world as an act necessary for survival but Nietzsche makes it very clear that the interpretation is something linked to history, context, and need. Perceptions, logic, and reason developed because they were useful for life, not because they were true or accurate portrayals of a transcendental reality. Thus, like Stirner, Nietzsche claimed there can be no basis for maintaining the belief in fixed ideas. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like what I was saying earlier about like using categorization and rules of thumb as like heuristic tools, something that you recognize is limited and incomplete, but is just useful for the moment. Because I think that's where a lot of human behavior comes from. I mean, if you look at, you know, natural selection and the, the way that human beings evolved, at least according to the science that's available to us now, it really, really seems like human beings didn't strive towards any kind of like complete intellect or any kind of like yeah, completing of a human system or of a, of a natural system, we're literally just trying to survive and we're using whatever tools we have. An ideal ideology is a tool, um, you know, making ontological claims about things is a tool and they've helped us at times at the past. But like, just like that 12 year old fedora core atheist I once was, who's like, maybe Christianity isn't that relevant anymore. You know, I think a lot of us should be thinking maybe the trappings of humanism really aren't that relevant anymore or any other kind of essentialism. Yeah. And I think um, to kind of build on that a little bit is to look at this through the lens of, uh, I think in particular, Lacan and, Derrida, in the sense of, and the text kind of goes at this too, that these sort of representations always commit an error of omission. And I think when you look at Derrida, that's what always his focus on is almost like what is left out. Like what is, 
like in the binary oppositions between good and bad and and writing and and speech etc cetera, etc cetera, and on down the line like what is left out what is the and maybe more lacanian is like what element of meaning of the real is escaping whenever we're trying to put a, a tie a signifier to a to a concept you yeah, know what i mean there's always going to be like a slippage you're never going to be able to fully represent the real with some signifier that signifier is always going to be you know what i mean there's always going to be a lack there a fundamental lack yep. that's escaping that's exactly what Stirner says too, you know, like I, I call you Ludwig, but Ludwig does not exhaust you. It is just a, an act that I have to gesture towards the thing that is you. And it's not even just you because you is yet another indeterminate word I use to refer to something for which I have no complete and Gnostic like definition. And I think... Uh, that's that's really powerful, and I I haven't read a ton of Nietzsche. I know that the, I have a big Nietzsche-shaped hole <laughs> in my uh, philosophy kind of reading, but I've always been put off by people who carried books by Nietzsche around. But I I mean I guess the same could be said by a lot of people about people who carry sure, the no, ego no, in its right. own around. So yeah, exactly. So a I'll lot give of overlap a, there. Well, you know that shake. um I think that Nietzsche is often kind of like referred to. Would uh, Nietzsche is kind of like the anarchist Marx. So you're really you're <laughs> slipping up there, buddy. <laughs> I mean, in a lot of ways, I, I I could definitely believe that. I would say that the the anarchist Marx, there was an anarchist who translated Capital and wrote like a pamphlet version of it. I'm his name is escaping me, but he was really really good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It was I never understood Nietzsche as an anarchist. I always understood Nietzsche as the like a romantic version of Stirner. Yeah, well, I think... A slightly more Baroque version. I think that is sort of it, too. And I think, in particular, his sort of critique of of morality. But then his... I think his approach to philosophy as well is just... had such an influence on anarchists. And definitely, like, even more so, like, the post-structuralists. I mean, his method, the genealogy of morals, for example, like, that's basically what... Foucault's work is a direct derivative of is taking that approach, the genealogy of power of sexuality. You know what I mean? Like all yeah. the things that kind of Foucault delved into. Well, and it's interesting because you can see that arrived at by a lot of different you know thinkers. A lot of people characterize Kropotkin as being a, like an essentially very humanist kind of anarchist thinker. But if you read his pamphlet Anarchist Morality, there's a whole section in it that actually talks about egoism. But he calls it other names. But he even says in one paragraph, he says, if there were not already connotations for such an established word, one could refer to this as the egoistic principle. Clearly, he doesn't want to call it that way because in Russian or whatever he was writing in, probably English actually because um, he was living in England at the time, uh, he recognized that that kind of interrelationship in, in connotation. But there's there's been thinkers you know throughout history who have tried to strip away the moralizing elements of morality and like come to kind of a, a, a guide of ethical rules that is based in in relating to each human being. So yeah, I mean, uh, every time I do a podcast, uh, especially with you, I feel like I learned something and I put something on my reading list. So I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into to Nietzsche's genealogy of morals after this. We've I mean we've talked a little bit about it in its way, and I'm thinking maybe beyond good and evil, 
maybe handles this a little bit more because we I don't think we really address morality or ethics, but that was sort of Nietzsche's whole approach was we have to go beyond this master slave morality and this sort of binary opposition between good and evil, and we have to be a little bit more comfortable with sort of an indeterminacy yeah. there without the fixed con- categories of good and and evil and realizing like that these concepts are not universal and there is you know what i mean there's always going to be a certain slippage there oh yeah i mean it's like sterner said essentially he's like you know fixed ideas are the most sacred thing to those who hold them i don't remember his exact phrasing but it was something like attack the fixed idea of such a fool and you will soon find yourself needing to guard your back against his paranoid advances (laughs) So it's thinkers like, you know, Stirner, Nietzsche, Camus, Foucault, all these people that we've talked about who I think really represent not an economic threat to power the way that uh, Marxist ideology does, but just kind of like a, a social threat to power. And I think a lot of leftist organizers have always kind of lamented that we never had the social education or the class education or whatever you want to call it to kind of like win enough of the lumpen proletariat over to our cause or whatever kind of formulation you want to use there. But I I think that that really comes from like a lack of being honest and being ready to interrogate and tear down not just, you know, Christian ideas or capitalist ideas, but humanist ideas and all of these kind of grand totalizing factors that maybe make us think that, or not us, but I mean us as like, you know, the the disinterested proletariat think that, oh, well, at least, you know, I got my individual freedoms under capitalism. There's a double-edged sword there of needing to show them that, one, A, you don't, and two, B, uh, you could have so much better if you interacted with the idea of a revolution or the idea of existing outside of the dominant power structures in a way that was not just something that you could place above yourself and feel in service to, but was legitimately an affirmation of you. Uh, and I mean, I just, just from a weird, you know, Jeremy Bentham fucking utilitarian perspective, you're not going to win people over unless you can do that. So. I mean, I don't know. I I hate to be that guy, but uh, it's not just what I want. I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, I, I want to get into this next bit of the text. I, I fucking love this quote. Um, Fixing a concept or idea within a closed system of identities and meanings lends authority to utterances. This process is a means of generating power. But I'll read more so from the actual text. But that quote, holy shit. I was like, yeah. yes. This really is strong. like, if I have a project, it is, it is this. <laughs> Representation is a structural illusion slash plane created by closing off a concept from its multifaceted meaning. This epistemological closure grants power to text through creating the illusion of stability. That's Derrida right there. Stability <laughs> generates a clear boundary between meaning and non-meaning. It is precisely this gesture in the act of generating concepts that produces the fundamental error of the fixed idea. From the perspective of Stirner, Nietzsche, the post-structuralist, the sophist, and the sophist rather, such stability is epistemologically unsound. Its value is political. Fixing a concept or idea within a closed system of identities and meaning lends authority to utterances. This process is a means of generating power. Woo! 
that's so hot right there. <laughs> when he says its value is political, yes. oh, I like Hell I got yeah. a little bit. Yeah, mm. I did too. Um, what Stirner, Nietzsche, and the post-structuralists claim is that the authority generated by the fixed idea is not the authority of truth, but the authority of power. Yes. The fixed idea is a fiction created because it legitimates power. Fixed ideas do not have transcendental validity. They have only a utility function in the nexus of power knowledge. Damn. That's literally everything that we've been yes. saying on this yeah, pod exactly. is, so far is just like all mm-hmm. leading up to this like realization that there's this, this transcendental validity comes from nowhere. Like, I won't say that it's not real because we're, it's real in its, in that people acknowledge it, but it's, it doesn't come from anything. We just want it to be there or it's just a, it's a byproduct of our social mechanisms or I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm just floored by this paragraph. But yeah, I think more so it's like the, what he's doing in terms of tying author like power, political power to the fixed. Yeah. Because it, because then it becomes once that power is exercised through the fixed, then it is a cudgel to be wielded against you. Yeah. It's a, it's a cynical political application of philosophy. And just like there are cynical political applications of other things that are supposed to be impartial, like science, you know, science is wielded cynically and as a tool of power all the time and in an unscientific way, just like philosophy is wielded cynically and in an unphilosophical way all the time as an instrument of power. I remember when I first heard about Foucault and somebody was explaining him to me and they were like, in short, he's basically saying everything is a representation of power. And I was like, that's insane. Not everything is about power. And the more I think about it, it's like, I can't think of one fucking thing that doesn't have anything to do with power. I can't think of anything. I mean, even just me enjoying a fucking Klondike bar out of my freezer, I had the power to go get that. I had the power to choose when to eat it. I had the the power to do a million different things with it. And the product that it is and my desire for it and everything are all products of power. Like, it's, it's insane. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's also super scary. You know, there's a reason people, I'm sure that this has been the most, uh, engaging possible podcast for somebody who doesn't (laughs) want to think about (laughs) why do they want a Klondike bar or why they want to smoke weed or whatever. (laughs) I think though, too, um, I mean, you can see this function in society now with like gender or sexuality or, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, you can't. You can't behave that way because this is what a man is and this is what marriage is or this is what love is or you know what I mean this is what intimacy is it can only be it can only be between a thing that is considered I have categorized as a male and a female and anything outside of that is is wrong and is you know what I mean like or yeah well, that's why it's called gender essentialism, right? Like, we've been railing against essentialism this whole pod, and it's like, yeah, essentialism is bad. Gender essentialism is bad. Social essentialism is bad. Humanist essentialism is bad. That's where we lose most people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. But uh, moving on, I think that'll, that kind of segues really nicely into the next section titled the, politi- the Politics of the Self. Once the human being is represented as a stable, objective concept, here he or she becomes replaceable. Interesting here in the text is that this process of ob- 
objectification turns a world of unique individuals into material for production units, police computers, and concentration camps. Once the human being is represented as a stable objective concept, she oh, I'm actually reading here from, directly from the text. I won't bore you with that. There is only a mass, as Jacques Derrida put it. The process of objectif- objectification turns a world of unique individuals into the material units. Okay, I'm going to. As Todd May describes the post-structuralist project, all assertions of human essence, even humanism, must be rejected, as is the case with the post-structuralist. Sterner also rejected the possibility that any totalizing, totalizing rather, concept of man could do no justice could do justice to the unique character of each individual. What links this position to criticism of the state is their relationship between the construction of truth and the conditions of power in society. If truth is a historical construction, and if it does not have any link to a trans transcendental a historical universal law or condition, then the structure from which truth is generated cannot be separated from the institutions of power which make them possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I just agree with all of that. It's a, I don't even have anything to add to that because that paragraph really says what it's trying to say. Um, you know, it's like, the as soon as you become a quantifiable entity, it's so easy for you to just slip into being a tally mark on somebody's piece of paper. And maybe that means you're their employee. Maybe that means you're their prisoner. Maybe it just means you're their fellow man or student in like, uh, or student in like a in just a cynical social sense. And now you have all these expectations that come from all of these categorizations and and you end up taking police care of each other, reminding each other of what you are. Oh, should a student be acting like this? Should a professor really be acting like this? Should my dad really say that? You know. Meanwhile, all of these people are so much more than just those things, just because those things are an accurate way to tie them to a circumstance right this moment. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean that you shouldn't act in a way that's appropriate for the position or the situation that you're in, just to remember that these things don't, exhaust you and they're not immutable truths of society because it's believing that that lets you know cynical groups like the news media and the state and and political power generally rule over you and manipulate you and and turn you against your own best interests yeah you are jewish you should be you know shipped off to a to a camp or you are or like you're jewish you should automatically support israel you know like and it happens with every identity like um you know, people will say, like, people will make assumptions about the way black people vote if there's a black candidate running. You know, um, it's any number of things. No matter what your identity is, you're going to become essentialized in one way or another. But it's a reflection of power. And that's why you can't really be racist against white people, pretty much. <laughs> because they have, they have institutional power. So it's not the same as, as reinforcing a culture of subjugation against an ethnic minority. Uh, and of course, it's just U.S. politics, but like it happens in different permutations around the world, and it functions on lines of, uh, especially class, but also definitely, you know, gender, race, uh, religious creed, everything. Any way that somebody can compartmentalize you away as not you, but as this Concept, other thing yeah. that belongs, yeah, as this, this abstract other. category, it's a dehumanization. And like, I mean, people think that. You tell them you're like an egoist or that you really like Sterner and they think you're going to be like the biggest, most dismissive dick of all time. But it's this very like 
particularist, nominalist conception of the world that's made me, I think, in a lot of ways, really start to appreciate other human beings as the like full and rich, indefinable things that they are, even if I don't know them yet, you know, because I just know they're going to be one. My experience tells me there's a 99% chance every person I meet will be another ineffable thing, a creative nothing. <laughs> And I mean, I think it's funny too, like, I think given both of our sort of, I guess, temperaments, <laughs> is we're yeah, probably like so. the two chillest kind of like, eh, whatever guys, <laughs> like we're not, I think the, what you would anticipate, I think someone who's um, influenced by Sterner would be, you know? No, I don't have a type A personality, definitely. <laughs> um, this this next bit, I think this is, you'll, you're going to love this. This is a fucking great part. Um, so I'm going to read here. And this is fire. Hence, Sterner draws the only logical conclusion possible based on his premises that is that it is the state that maintains the generalized concept or idea to which the individual must conform, and it is the state, therefore, that must be resisted. Power attaches identities to people. Power imposes a law of truth that ties people to power. Hence, Michel Foucault concluded that the real political battle is not over the content of truth, but over the status of claims to truth. This is precisely what Stirner recognized in rejecting the fixed idea. The state reinforces the fixed idea by imposing a code of conduct and discipline on the population. The generalized concept, man, is the bearer of the idea of normalcy. Normalcy provides the foundation for the code of discipline. Discipline takes the form of control over individual bodies. It is the state that carries out the imposition of what humanistic culture demands. Man, that's so hot. That's such hot fire. It's like, that line is making me want to look up other stuff this Andrew M. Koch guy has written. Because that's like just such an incisive, like... He's really laid it all out for you. And of course, we haven't read the full text for those of you listening to the podcast. But um, when you do, when you get to this segment, it really feels like a fucking culmination of the whole work and really lets you know that it's not just, you know, Stirner's fixed idea or, you know, the Erstadt or normalcy or territorialization or, you know, power knowledge or whatever any particular philosopher has a term for. It's kind of this thing that they're all gesturing at where power defends itself by reifying ideology in a way that you will consume it in a fashion so that it lends more power back to that body and, and claims of truth, claims of knowledge, claims of moral superiority. Uh, there's no way to show that they come from anything but this. We're not saying they automatically come from this, but there's we don't have anything else to go on. So it's a very good guess that it's it's power trying to preserve itself. And, I mean, you can go out into the world and watch it happen. You can see it happen with anybody who gets promoted to some position of petty authority and is suddenly a huge dick about everybody getting their breaks on time or whatever. <laughs> right, you if you've say, ever worked yeah, in retail, you've seen this. Yeah, if you've ever worked in retail or food service, you, f- you fucking know exactly what a tiny little bit of authority does to a person and how power begins to weirdly build perverse ways to defend itself as soon as it exists. Um, And, you know, of course, I'm not one of those people that thinks there's automatically a way to escape this. 
I just think that being very conscientious of it is really just just so important and admirable and it's going to help you not be so stressed out all the time. I deal with a lot of anxiety. It helps me. So I think it could probably help other people. I don't know. I'm just one person. I'm just one creative nothing. I don't know if I've talked to you about this, but um, considering anarchism as... Anarchism is the method, I think, is the way that I think about it. And so what anarchism is really getting at is that central problem that you're describing. And so if you take away the tools for power to assert itself, then that is the best one can do, or that is the best strategy or the best methodology to produce a free, equal society. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think a lot of anarchists, whether they, think about it this way or not, or really just trying to reconcile the contradiction between individuality and collectivity. And maybe, you know, like beyond good and evil, we just need to go beyond the dichotomy and recognize that there is no pure individuality and there is no pure collectivity. They're they're inter-reliant phenomenon that don't exist without They're not discrete. There's no discrete boundaries in them. Yeah, exactly. Just like there's no discrete boundaries between me and the world, you know, or us in power. My, yeah, or us in power, right? Like, is my finger part of me, or is it part of the world? If I clip off a fingernail, is that fingernail part of me, or is it part of the world? Like, it becomes a semantic distinction because semantics is how we interface with the murkiness of reality, and it is that because reality is murky and. It's just, it comes down to the fact that we're just kind of, we're, we're really just grappling in the dark. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, is, is the point of Stirner just to be humble? I have no idea. But in a lot of ways, I feel like remembering that is like really humbling and makes you remember that like, I don't know, a lot of my social problems are caused by me thinking other people know what they're doing and I don't <laughs> know what I'm doing. And uh Shit like this just reminds me that nobody really knows what they're doing, and it's very, very, very comforting. It's such a it's such a beautiful thought. Yeah, and experts or the elite can't, like, look how shitty of a job they've done, so why the fuck should we trust? Like, it's obviously unmasked liberalism as a failure, Yep, is that fucking like, experts are no better at making decisions than anybody else. No, they're just experts mostly because of luck and because of chance yeah. and because of power. Because power, you, you, you land on some power and you make it reproduce and suddenly you're in the game of reproducing power. Uh, you know, there's got to be a good way to escape it. I'm still working on it. I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, drawing from the conclusion of the piece, uh, it looks like Coke is coming out strongly and saying that Stirner is far more anti-Hegelian than the pinnacle of the Hegelian tradition. And then he goes yeah, in a little fair. bit on, is Stirner the first post-structuralist? In a sense, it's an absurd question that only has meaning with the confines of, confines of a linear history. Stirner, Stirner's a part of a perspective that goes back to the <laughs> earliest Western civilizations. The sophists, um, within transcendentalism came a transformation as Foucault described after Plato, the idea of true and false discourse replaced open inquiry. The idea of fixed and universal truth had supplanted dynamic critique. The stage was set for the folly that has been Western philosophy. Stirner, Nietzsche, and contemporary post-structuralism all share this view. Further, they are concerned for what 
this condition of knowledge means in social life, they believe that any fixed representation of the human character is both etymologically flawed and politically dangerous. Ideas cannot be fixed. Truth is plural, dynamic, and contingent. When the human being is ascribed to fixed and general nature rather than being protected under the rights of man suggested by liberal humanism, they lose their unique identities and become objects of domination. The transcendental ideal pits the body against the intellect. We become slaves to the conceivable, posing as truth. Difference is negated in favor of the general. The value of true individualism cannot be realized where the I does not represent a unique set of experiences and ideas. Wow, that fucking line, we become slaves to the conceivable, posing as truth... That's so good. That gives me the same kind of yeah, chills know, right? as the first time I heard that Murray Bookchin quote when he was like, uh, the idea that what is must necessarily be is the acid that corrodes all visionary thinking. And I was just like, wow, that's so awesome. You know, and it really, it comes from the Humean, you know, let's not derive an ought from an is, you know, and let's, let's be partial. Let's recognize that we are. That's so, so, so good. And like, if there's anything I think in my personal conception of philosophy, it's that point that is really like the most singularly important. Maybe not without everything else, but definitely placed in front of everything else. Like, let's not derive an ought from an is. Let's figure out the best way things ought to be, and then let's get there from where it is. Amen. Woo! Um, but I think that pretty much wraps up the uh, discussion on the article itself. One thing I did want to mention to you um, that you might be interested in is, so there is a book Derrida wrote called um, The Spe- Specters of Marx, in which okay. he's really investigating the German ideology, a little bit of Capital, maybe Capital Volume 1 and the Manifesto, Okay, and... That sounds cool. It's where the whole, um, I don't know if you're familiar with hauntology. Not really. I've heard the term, but that's about as far as I know. Gotcha. So hauntology is where it was primarily derived from specters of Marx. And I think Mark Fisher kind of did, I think Mark, there's a little bit of discussion in his writing as well about hauntology. Oh, yeah, because I think I've heard that in the same breath as Exiting yes, the Vampire Yes, yes, I think that it's that's the piece that it's primarily refer- referenced in. Um, but yeah, uh, there's a it's a really interesting... I have the book. I'm fucking looking at it right now. The, the cover's really dope. It's got like this sort of pointillist color thing of that kind of traditional photograph of Mark, so I, I'll have to send it to you. But uh, I'm really interested in or excited to dig into that book. But I have yeah, so many yeah. others... In front of I'll it. download a PDF copy of it if you want to read it and have like a little book club thing going. I'd love to have a book to discuss with somebody. That sounds like a perfect one too. That's right up my alley. Yeah, I mean, I have so many. Um, I've got a bunch of uh, a couple of Baudrillard things that I'm want to read. I think the first thing I'm going to get into is the Spirit of Terrorism, which is <laughs> that sounds dope. I know almost nothing about Baudrillard. Oh man, Baudrillard. If you wrote a strong, if you wrote a book called Sterner the Spirit Energy, of Terrorism, he's got that yeah? same. Yeah, I think. He's he definitely has the like biting, um, the wit I think of of Sterner. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm in. I I've been needing uh, reading recommendations. Oh, Baudrillard is 
uh, he I, he understood something about America like no one else could, or even like our present moment was so prefigured by. He's like the postmodern prophet that he totally <laughs> understood where things were heading. It's almost supernatural. You just gave every modernist philosopher a conniption fit somewhere in the world <laughs> by saying the words postmodern prophet. Oh, he absolutely. I mean, he's critical criticized for being a nihilist i mean sometimes that nihilist shit hits good you know it hits really good it can be so good like literally just read the myth of sisyphus and the nihilist shit will never be depressing yeah. ever again it's like it's almost like that the like condition of cutting it's like that kind of ah <laughs> that bitterness to it you know <laughs> yeah like eating a corner shot that's way too vinegary but you know that you're still going to love it when you make that fucking lemon face and just like pucker your eyes and lips at the same time. Or like when you torture yourself with uh, uh, way too hot hot sauce just because you think it'll be fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or hot, I mean, yeah, like something crazy hot is definitely, I think. Or it's like why I play fucking Kaizo <laughs> Mario levels. Yes, exactly. Just ah. to torture myself. That is definitely, that hits, that hits perfectly. I, I really love that metaphor. That's brilliant. Because <laughs> I'm like watching some of these videos, I'm like, ah, oh, this doesn't even look like fun. This looks like it's torture. It's it's so difficult that it's not even enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, it's like I always kind of make fun of people who run because I'm like, why would you run for 20 miles a day and just fucking torture yourself? And then I sit down, I'm like, I'm gonna find the hardest fucking level <laughs> I can and spend four hours trying to beat it. Nice. Well, I don't want to keep you t any longer unless you have... Do you want to have some final thoughts or do you want to plug anything on your end? Uh, no, I'm just really... I'm really glad that we did this piece. I'm really glad that we talked to, got to talk about Sterner and post-structuralism. As always, it's been really good for me because you have such a, a wide base of knowledge with the French post-structuralists and post-modernists. And my knowledge of Sterner comes mostly from a place of just being interested in him and doing a little bit of secondary reading here and there on it. Yeah, same. So it's it's fun to get to like voice my opinions and get to learn a little bit and see the way that you read the article versus the way that I read the article and all of this stuff. So thank you so much for having me on your show. Obviously, I guess, listen to my show, Beep Beep Lettuce. It's pretty good. I like to think it's pretty good. We make a lot of dick jokes. Uh, and then I also have a stream. I stream every Tuesday and Friday, usually from 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at twitch.tv slash beepbeeplettucepod. And yeah, just thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said, couldn't think of a better person to have for episode 100 to come talk oh. fucking Sterner and post-structuralism. This is like uh, eating cake for the intellect. <laughs> and definitely, listeners, if you're not checking out Beep Beep Lettuce, you need to support them because not only is, uh, is John a friend of the show, but also Todd as well at Argument Winner. Oh, yeah. Todd told me to say, uh, to say what's up for him. So what's up from Todd? <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think uh, Todd and I have uh, at least tangentially discussed doing a, a review episode once the uh, Joker movie comes out. <laughs> oh, so man. That would be I'm, extremely dope. I'm going to try to hold him to that and see. Uh, I think that would be pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, you should do it. But this will be podcast care of Cooper Cherry signing off once again. Have a good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>